Welcome to University of Iowa Insights, a monthly audio magazine featuring interviews with some of the world's leading thinkers, researchers, and teachers. This month on Iowa Insights, Lois Gray talks with Professor Maureen McHugh about a group of students who plan to visit Haiti and provide relief following the country's devastating earthquake. Then, Nicole Reel talks with history professor Leslie Schwalm about her new book, Emancipation's Diaspora, which shows how the end of slavery changed more than just the South. But first, Tom Snee talks with management sciences professor Ann Campbell about the importance of the emerging field of disaster transportation logistics in providing relief and reconstruction in Haiti. Transportation logistics is a pretty big field of research um, that encompasses a lot of different things. So some of the things you might think of, like scheduling buses and scheduling trains in large cities would fall under transportation logistics, um, figuring out uh, which airplane and airline should send from which city to which city is transportation logistics, but also the stuff that I do, which is more looking at how companies should send freight um, from point A to point B. In terms of disaster logistics, um, I would say the more common term is humanitarian logistics, which is looking at how logistics problems change when they're related to humanitarian relief efforts or preparing for situations where humanitarian relief will be needed. And that encompasses a lot of uh, research related to um, delivering things after a disaster, as well as looking at how to get people out of a city. And then there's also a lot of research with things related to how you get food and medical supplies to areas like in Africa that have a sustained need for humanitarian effort. What are some of the logistics issues that face Haiti after the earthquake? The, the always the big issue when you have a disaster is you have to build essentially a supply chain overnight to get products like food and water and, and medical supplies, things that people could take care of on their own before you got to get them to them uh, and, and satisfy those needs. And so in Haiti, we've seen a lot of the problems are they've got a lot of issues of the fact that they're on an island, uh, on an island where the port was essentially destroyed. We've all seen they were a country that didn't have the kind of highways uh, the United States has. Uh, very few airports, the airports they had, had a very limited capacity and very limited equipment to unload planes that could arrive with supplies. How do they overcome these challenges? Well, in their case, they had to depend on a lot of friends, uh, and particularly the U.S. military, I think, has taken a, a big role in uh, taking over the airports and uh, getting that going in a little more organized way. I mean, when you only had a need for, what, 30 tourist flights per day, the demands on the airport are a lot different uh, than in this situation where they're trying to get closer to 90. We had the U.S. military bring in aircraft carriers to essentially provide a second airport. A lot of groups kind of helped out with the port. Um, some U.S. military groups helped clear out the area around the port. Um, some companies donated equipment. Uh, one company brought in a floating barge to help uh, offload supplies. So really trying to come up with as many workarounds as possible. A lot of infrastructure things obviously you can't build overnight, but are more long-term kinds of things. After the first stage of relief is finished, what comes next? I think that's obviously one of the big things they're looking at now and one of the big questions they're talking about is, is where to get money and what's, what are going to be the priorities in that, that regard. Because once you have food and water needs taken care of, obviously there's, there's housing and, and bigger needs. And 
I think that remains a little bit to be seen of how they're going to do that because getting just trucks around is a very difficult thing in the area. But essentially it is a huge development project. I mean, they're essentially starting from zero on a lot of things there. So there's a lot of opportunity to do things well or a lot of opportunity to do things poorly. Dr. Maureen McHugh is an adjunct clinical professor in the University of Iowa College of Public Health who teaches global health and international programs. She originally started coordinating a UI class on Haiti in July 2009. However, after the devastating earthquake struck the country on January 12th, she swiftly switched gears and recreated a class titled Haiti, the Evolution of a Disaster. Originally, it was to have been an experiential learning in Haiti, which, as you know, is unfortunately the poorest country in the hemisphere. It is a close neighbor. It is facing many of the challenges that we see evolving around the world. It has come up with um, some very interesting and creative responses to needs for education, for water, for protection of human rights, uh, for promotion of health in some pretty difficult settings. This was all prior to the earthquake. And so I thought it was good for the students to actually experience what some of the challenges are, how they're responding. Obviously, after the earthquake, things have changed significantly. And um, while we had hoped to go down over the spring break, um, we've postponed it now till May because we really would rather be a help than a hindrance, you know, during the acute phase of the difficulties down there. And Maureen, as Haiti begins to fade from the media headlines, how do you hope this will help the future careers of the students in this class, or how will they use this knowledge for the betterment of humanity? Well, of course, it all depends on the students and where they take their professions. However, all of the students in the class are very interested in global health, in the challenges that face people around the world to achieving good health, to maintaining good health. And um, water, food, environment, um, the climate, all of these things are challenging a population that is growing rapidly around the world in mega cities like Port-au-Prince had been. Um, and these kind of challenges continue to arise in different forms, indeed, in different parts of the world. But I think all of us are going to have to do a lot more thinking globally, acting locally, looking at what it is we do here that affects people over there, what we can do differently here or there. And Maureen, what lessons do you think students are learning from your class right now that will benefit future responses to natural disasters? Well, we're still early in the semester. Um, we are trying to look a little bit at the history of Haiti. Haiti has been buffeted for political reasons, you know, for a long time by various administrations in this country by various uh, European uh, influences. As you know, they started out as a colony from France. They were one of the very first nations that was composed primarily of former slaves to have um, a revolution and free themselves. However, they've been really trapped in um, some very difficult political, economic, trade-related uh, situations over the decades, in fact over more than the past century, um, that has put them into harm's way in, in many ways and has um, adversely impacted the health and the development of the country. Mm -hmm.
talking with Leslie Schwalm, Associate Professor of History, African American Studies, and Women's and Gender Studies at the University of Iowa. Her latest book focuses on former slaves who migrated to the Midwest during the Civil War and Reconstruction period. Leslie, about how many men and women came to this region after achieving their freedom? Well, it's hard to come up with a good number because the census wasn't conducted until 1870, and we're talking about the period right in the middle between censuses, so it's actually very hard to come up with a good estimate, but our best estimate for the entire upper Midwest, so Wisconsin, Minnesota, and Iowa, is about 6,000 people, and Iowa received um, the largest proportion. It's not enough to really change significantly the proportion of African Americans in the state's population, but what it does is bring African Americans into townships and counties that hadn't had black residents before. So of all the places that they could have moved, you know, after being emancipated, why did they choose Iowa or the Midwest? Well, because of the Mississippi River, which was the major highway. It was the route for escaping from the Mississippi Valley. So it was uh, predominantly Mississippi Valley enslaved people who then come up the river um, by boat uh, to uh, Minnesota and Wisconsin and Iowa. Tell me a little bit of, about how they were received once they got here. Well, there was a considerable amount of white anxiety and hostility. Um, most of the white settlers uh, in the Midwest generally viewed the frontier as a, a place of whiteness. Um, they associated their own opportunities with the absence of African Americans, and this is because they associated African Americans with slave labor and believed as free workers they couldn't compete with slave labor. There was anxiety that um, the white population would be overwhelmed by former slaves. There was anxiety about integration because at this time um, every public accommodation and social institution in the upper Midwest was segregated quite strictly. Clearly achieving freedom improved the lives of the former slaves, but could you tell us exactly how their lives were better in the Midwest and what difficulties they still encountered? Uh, I mean, they chose to come up to the Midwest. First of all, we have to be very clear about that. These are uh, people who are slaves during a time of civil war. There's a great deal of chaos and violence and threats to their families as well as to their survival. So they viewed migration out of the South as a way to gain their freedom, but also as a way to survive. So there were many benefits for them in, in coming to the upper Midwest in that regard. They escaped into a peacetime society. They found places where they could work and support themselves and their families. But what they also encountered was a society that was not willing to go beyond black freedom. That is, the laws of the upper Midwest, Iowa in particular, very closely circumscribed black citizenship. So segregation was legal. African-American men couldn't vote. They couldn't hold political office. Um, they couldn't challenge uh, refusals to serve them at a restaurant or to seat them uh, at a dining table on a steamboat. So every aspect of life uh, for them that they encountered outside of their homes, they, they ran up against this uh, question of citizenship. So it, it involved a very long battle 
to gain citizenship rights. And quite honestly, that's a battle that wasn't resolved in the 19th century. They were still waging that, that struggle. The book, Emancipation's Diaspora, is available through University of North Carolina Press. This podcast was produced by the University of Iowa Office of University Relations. For more information on our podcasts or to subscribe, visit us at news.uiowa.edu.